God um, working through the, the flood and how He is working through this time of judgment, both graciously, wrathfully, lovingly, and all of these at the same time and perfectly and completely and righteously and all that God is and does. Uh, but tonight what I want to do is read verses 10 through 16. This is our first section. This is what we're going to try to get through uh, tonight. And uh, this is going to be sort of a, a retelling of what has been taking place already in verse seven, uh, chapter 7, rather, and as well getting into some of the description of the, the flood as it's getting ready to come on the scene. And so let's begin here, verse number 10, down through 16. The Bible tells us, And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the, sixth, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were open. And the rain was upon the earth forty days and forty nights. And the selfsame day entered Noah, and Shem, and Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and, the no and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them into the ark, they and every beast after his kind, and all the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth after his kind, and every fowl after his kind, every bird of every sort. And they went in unto Noah into the ark, two and two of all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. And they that went in, went in male and female of all flesh, as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. And what we find is that this chapter began with God speaking to Noah in verse number 1. The Lord said unto Noah, Come thou in all thy house from the ark, uh, before I, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. And there in verse 16 we find not just an invitation for Noah to come into the ark, but then God with His mighty and gracious and loving and caring hand closing the door behind Noah and his family. And this does two things, and we'll get into this as we, as we make our way there. The hand of God that shuts the door, it both seals Noah and his family in there safely and securely, but it also keeps anyone and everything outside of that boat from now getting in. There is no one and nothing that will open up that door except the hand of God. This means that at this point in verse 16, when God shuts the door to that boat, to that ark, there's no one getting out, there's no one getting in. Now, that's a wonderful thing for those that are in the boat. But it's a frightening thing for all those that are outside of it. right? And as we've been talking about Jesus being, uh, the, the ark being a picture of Jesus and us being in Christ and our salvation, what we must see tonight as we keep this in mind, as we're going to get into the difficulty of looking at the flood, the atrocity, the catastrophe of it, the judgment of it, we've got to understand that this is not just a story about a cute little family, you know, Gilligan's Island on a three-hour tour, boat ride. This isn't it at all, right? This is everyone that is not in that boat will die. And they will die unbelieving. They will die without knowing the Lord, without ever having bowing down to Him by faith. And what we've got to understand is that the moment that they died, and this was 4,000 couple years ago they have been in hell since 4,000 years is a long time and they've got forever to go we've got to see that in the day that we are in we should be desperately calling and pleading for others to get into the ark that is Christ because when the when the door is closed again and it will close one day there will be none more to get in right 
And so we have to understand that the day is short, our time is short, and though we might be secure, there is a lost and dying world out there that is far from safe from God's hand. Now, as we get into this tonight in verse number 10, we pick up here, verses 10 through 12, we see this flow of judgment starting to come about and sort of the beginning descriptions of it. And it came to pass after the seven days that the waters of the flood were upon the earth. We've talked about the seven days already, the significance of it. Noah learning to abide in the Lord. Uh, Noah learning what it means to be shut up in the Lord. Noah learning what it means to be uh, even shut up and away from the world. He's now taken away from the world at this point. There is a division. He is safe. He is secure. But he's also waiting. He's working. He is waiting for the first raindrops to come. You say, well, do you think he ever questioned or wondered? And those seven days, I don't know. We're not told. But up to this point, we've seen Noah's testimony. It seems like he was trusting God to bring the flood. If he was trusting God for 120 years to build a boat, and he had never seen or had a need for such a boat that size, I think in seven days, Noah's faith isn't going to waver and, and think, well, maybe God's not going to bring, bring the rain. But it came to pass after these seven days here in the flow of judgment, after the seven days of waiting on the ark, the rains and the flood finally come. It says the waters of the flood were upon the earth. I believe it's a right thing for us to refer to this event as the flood. This is a singular flood event throughout the entire world. This is not just a localized flood. And we're going to see the language throughout this passage. As we already have seen in chapter 6 and 7 thus far, God intends not merely to send a little flash flood through, through Noah's village, right? This is not a, a little flash flood coming up here, Doppler radar, oh, hey, get to some higher ground, Noah. Uh, th- this is clearly a worldwide flood because Noah's not told, hey, get your animals, get your family, and just head up on a mountain. As a matter of fact, as we're going to see in this new booklet, that in the passage here, the water rises above any of the highest peaks. So there is no high ground for Noah. The high ground is being inside the boat, Right? Now, with this, faith is able not only to trust in God's promise and provision, but to wait for God's promise and provision. Noah could have, after 120 years, got kind of impatient, you would think. If, if, uh, if you have to wait, and if I have to wait for something in our microwave longer than we're supposed to, and it's just not quite warm enough, we start to get impatient, right? If we press the popcorn button, it's not popped in 30 seconds, we're, getting, we're, t- we're taking that microwave back, right? Now, we've got problems here. Now, we're an impatient people. Here, Noah, what we find is that he, by faith, is trusting God for not just a year, but thus far 120 years plus, that he is by grace through faith, trust in the Lord. He has looked to the Lord, depended upon the Lord, and he is trusting in what God has promised, what God has provided, what God has given we talked about this promise and provision of God. It is the word and work of God. And faith is able not only to trust what God says and trust what God does or has done or will do, but it awaits the promises. What we're going to find is this is going to be a theme throughout the rest of Genesis. How many of y'all have read the rest of Genesis? How many of y'all are wondering if I'm ever going to get through the rest of Genesis? Right? Put your hand down. There was only one of you, by the way. There's one over there in that section. What we're going to see is we get to Abraham, the next man sort of on this list. You know what he's got to do? Wait for the promises of God. You know what his son Isaac is going to have to do? Wait for the promises of God. You know what Jacob, his son, is going to have to do? Wait for the promises of God. You know what then uh, Israel is going to have to do for 400 years sitting there in Egypt? Wait for the promises of God. You know what then they're going to have to do over and over and over again? 
wait for the promises of God. You know what we're doing today? We're waiting for the promise of God. Did Jesus say that He's going to come back? Yes. Do you believe that? So what do we do now? We wait. <laughs> Here's what the Lord wants us to do. He wants us to occupy till He returns. And it looks an awful lot like this. Hurry up and wait. Right? Hurry up. Be busy for the Lord. Right? Waiting does not mean active, inactivity. Right? But we must understand that while we are being busy for the Lord, the motivation for our busyness, the motivation for every word that we speak and do is the fact that His Word will come true, that He is coming. Now, faith not only awaits, but faith abides in God's promise and provision while awaiting the promise and provision. Notice this. Noah is not twiddling his thumbs outside the boat waiting for the first raindrop. Noah has been brought into the ark before the first raindrop. Matter of fact, he's got a week to think about it. Now, if you and I have longer than a week to think about something, sometimes we start second-guessing everything. We're making rash decisions. We're doing all sorts of things in a week's time, right? And so Noah here, he's not sitting outside the boat in, in, a, in a camp. God has brought him in already. Why? As we talked about this a couple weeks ago, dealing with this, as we picture the Christian life, we will only learn to wait God's promises and await His return if we learn to abide in Him moment by moment. Those who cannot abide in Christ day by day and moment by moment, will be far too impatient to wait for the Lord's will in their life, to wait for the Lord's work, and, and to wait simply upon the Lord. And the Lord tells us time and again, be still, wait upon the Lord, right? And God will do these things for us and on our behalf. It is His desire to do so. But the mistake that many of us make in such a busy culture, in such an active culture, that has replaced activity and busyness uh, for, for faithfulness. We have, we've said, well, as long as we're active and busy, we must be that must mean that we're faithful or successful. There's plenty of things that are active and busy that aren't very successful, right? Um, you can think about all sorts of things in this life that are going really quick, but it's just it's not really getting anywhere, right? We're, we can spin tires and think that we're going real fast, right? But we're still just spinning tires. Now, perhaps the most important work in the abiding life, the believer's life, is learning to wait on God's Word. Noah was not sitting around doing nothing, but rather he was waiting for God to speak, for God to tell him when to move, what to do, why to do it, right? What God was going to do. God gave the Word to Noah, then Noah obeyed. This is what our life must be. It must not be us doing something, then God having to correct and tell us something. Rather, we should get it the right way. God has spoken, therefore we respond. As we see, and we've talked about that earlier this year, grace reveals, faith responds. Noah by faith responds to what God has revealed first. God reveals, then we respond. Meaning this, here's what waiting on the Lord looks like. God speaks. We move. Right? God says stop. We stop. Right? God says slow down. We slow down. God says speed up. We speed up. What God says, we do. It is learning to practice and obedience to the Lord. And we only will obey the Lord as far as we are willing to sacrifice our life, to lay down our life, to abide in His life as He abides in us. We must learn to wait not merely on His Word, but upon His work and upon His will in everything of our life. Noah stands as a beautiful picture of the Christian life in these seven days of what it is to look like. The Christian life is much more than what we realize. It is an inner life. It is a deep life. It is a life dwelling and abiding in the ark of Christ where we have every source for every need of our life. 
where we have every bit of protection from the storms of life, from the trials of life, and even from the day of tribulation itself, we are safe and secure as long as we abide in the Lord. Now with this, we see that this date is given. As we get into verse 11, he says, It came to pass the seven days the waters of the flood were upon the earth in the 600th year of Noah's life. I, I, I read that I'm, automatically. My brain thinks that it's Noah's birthday. Do you, any of y'all read it that way? I don't know that it's Noah's birthday, that the flood comes. I don't think that was necessarily it. But it's the idea that this is in his 600th year of living on planet earth in the second month and the 17th day of the month. Now let's do this tonight. On the count of three, I want everybody to yell out their birthday. Alright? You don't even have to give the year if you don't want to. Just shout out the month and the date. You ready? One, two, three. Feb... Okay, I didn't think y'all were going to do it for... February 13th, that's mine. I, I hesitated for a minute. Y'all had to think about it. Now, we hear all these dates. Now, why do you know that date? You know it because not you remember it. <laughs> you were there, but you don't remember that date too well. You've been told that date all your life. You have signed it on everything in your life. You've put that date down a million times. And once a year, somebody sticks a cupcake in your face and you blow out a candle, right? That's it. Happy birthday. That date means something. Now, when God gives a date, do you think it means something? Absolutely. Now, why is God giving such a date? God is giving this date to show us that in the eyes of God, in the eyes of Noah, in the eyes of the world, this is a historical fact. Now, let me ask you this tonight. This should be pretty easy. Were you born? Yes. Matter of fact, you just all hollered out your birthday like a bunch of wild engines. You were born. That's a historical fact. And you've got the date to prove it. You've got the body, the life to prove it. You and I have got something. We've, we've got more evidence that the flood happened than we're even alive. We've got countless evidence that this is true. This is God's breathed Word. God gives the dates. He gives the details. Matter of fact, we've got a whole world surrounding us, a very pagan world, mind you, that even points their culture's history back to a worldwide flood. This is evident all around us. Matter of fact, if you have seen a rain, how many of y'all saw a rainbow the past few days with the rain? Guess what? That's proof that the flood happened. How do we know? That's when it shows up later on as we get through this. How about this? Have you ever seen destruction of water or rain or felt wind or seen the clouds developing? That's proof of the flood. Anybody ever been to the Grand Canyon? All right, anybody, at least the rest of us, ever seen pictures of the Grand Canyon? Right? We're, we're taking your word for it, and now We're taking the picture of the word for it. Right? We believe these things. Why? There is so much evidence that the flood has happened. What we find is that there is so much evidence that God's word is God's word. The day to remember is recorded as the 17th day of the second month of the year. Now, the actual time of year is unknown. What I mean by this is this. They didn't have January through December calendar here. Right? As a matter of fact, when Moses is writing this down, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy... We're, we're, we're going, they're going by an older uh, Hebrew calendar in the first place. So what we understand is this. If we wanted to know the exact time and celebrate this date of the flood coming every year, like we try to do with Christmas and Easter and every, Thanksgiving and everything else, we couldn't do it. We just don't know. But we do know this. Whenever at that time, probably in the life of Moses, that was the, 
the second month and the 17th day of the month, that was the day that the rains came. That was the day that the flood happened. Now, why did God do this? As what we see as you read through chapter 7 and 8 is that it reads much like a diary in some ways. It reads a lot like Noah writing these things down. Anyone ever kept a diary? You don't have to say that, right? Diary's supposed to be secret, right? But you know at the diary, you always put the date that you're writing this thing in. You want to record what you were thinking about during that time and all that sort of thing. It shows where you were in that moment, that time of life. It's like having a a scrapbook, a a picture collage. It's, It's writing these details down because this was a day to remember. Yet at the same time, it was a day that probably many wish they could have forgotten. Yet for those inside the boat, they remembered this was the day that God delivered us from everything that happened outside of the ark. The absolute horror of what it must have been. Now Noah is 600 years old, which would make his three sons 100 years old according to Genesis chapter 5, verse 32. What we're told is this, And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So these boys are around 100 years old. And they're being put in the boat with their wives and they're going to be used by God to repopulate the world. Now, This shows us as well several things. One, God can use anybody, any age, any time. That helps us today. But two, it also shows us that the world then was a whole lot different than it is now. Making it to 100 now, it is a, it is a grand feat. That one that should be celebrated. But as well, we find that their lifespans were much longer. And in that process, what we find is that if you're living longer, more than likely you're able to procreate longer as well. This tells me that the population, you can look at like Answers in Genesis and many others, many scholars tend to believe that the population at this time in earth, there's no reason why it could not at least have been in the, in the billions. Now that sounds... Far too much. You and I, we go, didn't we just start with two people in a garden? We did. They procreated rather quickly. And as a matter of fact, what we find is you can have a lot of babies in about 1,500, 2,000 years. If we understand this, let's think about in our own day and age. Back at the turn of the century in 1900, the population was like 3 billion. Now it's 8 billion. That's 100 years, right? And we've had two world wars, we've had all these different diseases, we've had all sorts of pandemics and epidemics and everything else and uh, all sorts of stuff, and yet the population continues to go and and to be on the rise. This tells us that there were a ton of people, much more than what we tend to realize. The pre-flood world is completely different with the aging of human bodies, wildlife itself, and the telling of times and seasons. But the Lord reveals this to be recorded history for us, for our sakes, that we know there is no doubt that this is what took place. Now there is some mystery, yet God knows every detail and He includes this detail to show us the factualness of this event. Kidner puts it this way, the precise date with its lack of obvious symbolism has the mark of a plain fact well remembered, and this is borne out by the further careful notes of time and history which are a characteristic of the Bible's texture knitting together the local and the cosmic. The precise dating of the gospel era is an example in Luke 3, 1 and 2. We find that God is a God of order, God is a God of details, and yet God can be a God of details and not give us, you and me, that is, every single detail that we'd like to know. There's a lot of things in the Bible that I wish I knew. 
There's a lot of little questions that are in between the lines that I just don't know about. And frankly, the moment we see the Lord, it won't, it won't quite matter anyways. But what we can see is that God knew every single detail, every single molecule, every single soul. He knew every bit of these things that were going to take place in Genesis 7 and 8 and 9 and all the way throughout the Bible, even before Genesis chapter 1 even begins with let there be light, right? God knows exactly what He's doing. Now, notice in the same verse as we get going, He says, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. In the English, it just doesn't quite tell us everything that's taking place. In one moment, the entire world literally shifts. This is what's taking place here. Fountains of the deep and windows of heaven. I wanted to kind of give you what Sorensen put. He kind of builds it all together for us here. He says, two sources of the floodwaters are noted. One, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up. Precisely what these are is not clear. There apparently were great reservoirs of water beneath the surface of the earth prior to the deluge. It may be as the heavens were open and catastrophic amounts of rain fell, the weight of the water upon the surface of the earth caused it to buckle and sink, forcing the waters beneath the surge upward. Uh, pause there for a minute. I, I tend to think that what is happening is not only is, as we're going to see, the immense rain from the canopy, if you will, just dumping uh, down upon the earth, but I believe the earth itself begins the, the groaning of, of even, to some degree, the last days of awaiting a redemption. The, the earth, I believe, shifts with its tectonic plates. Everything that it used to look like, it don't quite look like that today. Everything that was a valley becomes a mountain, and everything that was a mountain becomes a valley. Now, the reason why I believe this is because as we look in Revelation and we look at the end times things from the Old Testament pointing to what's going to take place at the return of Christ, and we see the time of the tribulation, the time of Jacob's, tro Jacob's trouble, what we find is that everything in that day is going to shift and move, if you will, right? Everything in that coming day of tribulation, during that seven-year tribulation period, it is going to literally shake the earth violently, right? Where it even talks about even the, the wicked men were, are going to seek to, to flee to the mountains and, and wish that the mountains would fall upon them, but they're not going to find death. There's going to be all these catastrophes taking place. And what we see is that I believe that what is going to be happening here in Genesis is that the earth itself is quaking in judgment. It is making sure that it is obeying God. And by the way, everything that took place in Genesis 7 that the earth does, both the water bursting up from the deep and the water coming down and destroying everything, it is perfectly obeying the command of God. This is God's command. This is God's decree. Because man had sinned, and not just a little sin, not just a little sin to overlook, and, and God could just go, well, I'll just pretend that they're not doing that down there. God could no longer continue to do such. Now, Are you talking about the verse that says that even the rocks, rocks will cry out? Okay. So the idea there that Jesus was doing uh, as He's going in and, he's, and uh, he's coming in and they're crying out Hosanna there on the day uh, of the triumphal entry. Uh, the Pharisees um, look and they say, tell, tell all these people, Jesus, tell them all to quit praising you like this. And He says, if I tell them to quit, the rocks will even cry out. But it is a similar idea in the sense that God's creation obeys and will obey. And so, here's the thing with this that we've got to understand. The difference between the rocks 
right? The difference between the waters of the deep and of the sky and mankind is mankind is made in the image of God. Mankind has a will that can be uh, one that goes against God's will and chooses willfully to go against God's will. Whereas the creation was put under a curse because of man's sin against God's will. So what we find is that even today, the earth, if you will, is groaning, awaiting for that day of redemption. And I believe that even to this degree, the very moment that sin enters into the world and the, the, the world itself, the creation and universe itself is placed under a curse because of man's sin, it is as if the earth itself is awaiting that day. God will make it brand new. And this flood is a part of that process. And so here's what we've got to do when we think about this. It's good that we think about other passages like that because what it shows us, and is that the whole Bible is connected. It shows us that every jot and tittle that God has given to us means something, and that it's pointing to a greater day where God will reconcile all things unto Himself, where God will make a new heavens and a new earth, and there will be no more curse there. What it does is it shows us that from the very beginning, God knew about the ending. Not only did God know about the ending, but He was bringing everything to get to that ending. And there in the center point is, as we talk about those rocks crying out, what Jesus was going to do is to go and die on the cross, to shed His blood, to raise again the third day, so that through the glorious Gospel, that the New Testament would be brought, which would reveal what the Old Testament had had as a mystery, and had it concealed. And now everything is going to be pointing to Christ, Old Testament, New Testament alike, and awaiting His return that He will make that new heavens, that new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness, and there will be no more curse. That's the goal of human history. The goal of human history is not merely to not go to hell. It's to be with God and what He is going to create for us so that we might enjoy His presence forever. And it will be better than a garden. It's going to be better than Genesis 1 and 2. And 3, because the garden's still there. I can't fathom that. We've never seen the beauty of the garden. We're going to see something even greater than that because there will be no more curse, nor do I believe there will be a potential for the curse. We don't find that evidence. And what we see is that that is, as we see this passage, this is a heavy passage, to be honest with you, right? Studying for this, this is heavy when we think about the judgment that God is bringing. We think about this more than likely in the matter of minutes, if not seconds, billions of people died and went to hell. That's heavy. But when we think about this, in the very middle of all that, God is preserving to bring about His promised seed that He had given all the way back to the very first sinner in the garden who's the one that brought the sin curse upon everybody else. The only one that would never be under that sin curse is Jesus Christ, the promised seed. But notice, and here's what's important. I know this isn't in our notes tonight. That's fine. We'll get to it. What's important about that? If we remember the big context of this passage, is this is not just a flood or a little story. This is God's big story of redeeming mankind. If the flood doesn't happen, God is not God. Because God would not be just, righteous, but He also would not be merciful and gracious. And He extends all this. And as we saw, and we've talked about the past few weeks, God, with the one hand, is beckoning. Get on the boat. Get on the boat. Listen to this man. He's preaching. Listen to him. And all the while withholding his wrath. And then, as we see in verse 16, Noah gets in the boat. And God shuts it after seven days. 
And now this hand is no longer beckoning and now the wrath is coming. But what's so important about this is inside that boat, the most important occupant is not Noah. It's not the boys, and it's not the ladies, and it's not the animals. It's the fact that inside of them, if you will, spiritually speaking, is going to lead down through a physical and a literal lineage to a better Noah, to a better Abraham, to a better Isaac, to a better Jacob, to a better Joseph, to a better Moses, to a better Aaron, to a better Joshua, to a better uh, uh, Saul and, and David and Solomon, to a better king, judge, prophet, priest that has ever been it's Jesus Christ. And Jesus would be born of a virgin not under the curse of sin because He knew no sin. He did not commit sin. Not only did He not sin, but He would not, could not sin. But here's the key. Then, Jesus was made a curse for us. Jesus was not under the curse of sin, and yet the curse of sin was then on that cross placed upon Him. That's the purpose of the flood. The purpose of the flood is not just to judge some bad people who had done some bad things. It's to bring Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, into the world. It's not just simply to bring about some continuation of a story, but it's to bring about Jesus, the One who will put an end to sin and death and separation from God. It is to bring about the One who will bring not just a, 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 a heaven and an earth after a flood, but a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no more curse again. And Jesus will never have to die again. No one else will ever have to die again. Uh, death will be no more. And so what we find with this flood is that God is picturing that life comes out of death. And with the Christian life, the same is true. We've seen this with Noah and his abiding in the Lord. And we find that all of this is pointing to get us ultimately to Christ. His death, His burial, and His resurrection. And even we can see this idea with the ark going down into the ark surrounded by death in the depths of the sea and coming out on dry land onto a new earth, tell me something more that can picture the Gospel. Right? We think of this as is picturing the person and work of Jesus Christ. The second thing about this, does that answer that question? Oh, I hope so. Well, yeah, yeah, sure. No, absolutely. That's good though. It's good. But what that does, and I'm thankful you said it, Ann, it brings the Bible together. Right? What we often do, guys, and let's be honest, sometimes, sometimes we just have a hard time studying the Bible because we just we got finite brains. We got sinful brains. We're trying to read our own stuff into it. We're just trying to figure out what in the world it's saying. And sometimes what we do is that we pick apart the Bible when the Bible's to pick us apart, right? It's to do the work on us, and we're trying to do the work on the Bible. What we sometimes do when we read and study the Bible is that we fail to see what God is doing in this part is just one small part of the bigger part, right? It's one fraction of human history in the grand scheme of all the eternal providences of God Himself found and wrapped up in the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, 
The second source of this water was the, the windows of heaven being opened as a metaphor for great rain as very well may be that the waters which were above the firmament in chapter 1, verse 7, the great canopy of water above the earth, uh, collapsed onto the earth. As noted earlier, if all of the moisture in the atmospheric heavens today could somehow be precipitated out at once, the level of the oceans would rise only slightly. Once again, the entire ecosystem of the earth was radically different prior to the flood. The oceans, the continents, the mountain ranges, the river basins, the climate, and the seasons, if there were any, were profoundly different than we know these today. The rain in that deluge must have been catastrophic. It was the first time there had ever rained on the earth as the canopy over the earth was collapsed. It must have produced a deluge of water that cannot be imagined. The atmospheric weather conditions which were induced were likely not only frightening but cat catastrophic as well. Truly the world as that civilization knew it came to an end. Here's what's interesting. I never really thought of it this way. The, the Lord's kind of revealed this in studying this. We remember back, all the way back when we were studying Genesis chapter 1, right? God created, and God created, God spoke and created in the evening and the morning were the first day, and the second day, and the third day. God made all these things. Do you know what else God made in week one? He made everything that was needed to preserve the world and those in it, but as well to punish those in it. Now, God had given everything that was needed for the world to survive. However, the world in its sin rebelled against God, and now everything that God needed and was going to use to judge the world was already there. God was not surprised by sin, but yet we find that He was saddened by this. Back in chapter 6, He's described as being grieved at His heart over it. That he's, It breaks His heart to see that this is going to have to happen. Because man has rebelled against him. God desires to give good gifts and blessing to his people, but the greatest blessing that there is is being in fellowship with him, and the world had willfully and woefully left fellowship with God. And that's the reason why we see the flood, and that's the reason why we see the shape of our world today. Kidner writes, We can infer from the statement above, excuse me, uh, uh, the statement about the great deep and the windows of heaven as a vast upheaval of the seabed and torrential rain, but the expressions are deliberately evocative of chapter 1. The waters above and below the firmament are in token merged again as if, if to reverse the very work of creation and bring back the featureless waste of waters. We find that this constant, there was there the Holy Spirit in chapter 1 hovering over the waters and then God separating, dividing the waters and now the waters are coming literally above and below, crashing in upon mankind, flattening Him just like that changing the entirety of the world itself. The entire earth shifts in a moment and floods from above and below come bursting forth, destroying all in its wake except those inside the ark. I believe more than likely what is taking place here is these tectonic shifts. Now with this, you and I, we hear about earthquakes, volcano or volcanic eruptions, and what often follows an earthquake or a volcanic eruption? Anybody know? Y'all remember? We've seen some Indonesia, tidal wave tsunamis, right? There's a constant, uh, there's, there's continued tremors, there's uh, outflow of all these things that uh, happen all at one time. Now imagine this. Now this is what is frightening to think about. And you might say, oh, well, 
it didn't happen that way. Well, to be honest, we don't know, but certainly this affects the entire world, and one easy way to affect the entire world. Could you imagine this today? This would scare scientists to death if, if they thought about this too hard. Could you imagine today if every volcano blew up at one time, if every tectonic plate in the world right, that causes earthquakes and things shifted at the exact same time, could you imagine what would happen? We'd be in a mess, wouldn't we? The entire world itself would quake. There would be uh, flow from uh, above and below. Water would be everywhere. Everything in existence, if you will, would be destroyed. At least from our understanding of how the world would work. If everything was to that sort of apocalyptic of nature, everything is being destroyed. So what we see here is that God, in a moment... And by the way, let's think about this. You say imagine the vastness of this world. And this isn't even the biggest planet in this solar system, let alone in this galaxy, let alone in the universe and the billions and billions of galaxies out there. Yet, God spoke everything into existence without there being anything needed for Him to use to create. God didn't have to take this molecule and that molecule that were already existing before and then put them together and see what He could make. He spoke and it happened. Now, God takes what He's already made it was, it was nothing for him. It, it was of no great effort of where God was going to be exhausted after this. God wasn't going to be tired or weary after this. This was a drop in a bucket for God to do. And all the world crumbled before the Lord. Now this is something that we see in the Psalms. In the Psalms, they often talk about how the earth and, and much of the poetic... Um, uh, literature of the Bible, uh, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, they often talk about the earth quaking before God. When God moves and everything, there's thunderings, there's lightnings. You can see it in, in Psalm 18, some references of these things about how everything just moves in the presence of God. Here, this is what takes place. But in it, everything is utterly destroyed. Now the upheaval of water and cataclysmic downpour from the heaven lasts for 40 days and nights, literally raining judgment upon the earth. Notice verse 12, and the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Now if you and I have a flood that happens for a couple days, it's rough. If you and I happen, and occasionally it happens where we get one of those times where it rains for two days straight, right? When it does that, we're going, whew. Now imagine much more than a rain. As we just talked about, imagine every, everything in the world shifting and water from below and above continuously going for 40 days and 40 nights. I can't fathom what that would look like. I just know it would be horrifying. It would be absolutely destructive in every which way. I want to end with this tonight. Uh, John Phillips, he writes about this, and he's got a, a really great way about his writing that sort of makes you sort of picture things and wonder about some of these things. He says, Did that day dawn as bright and as sunny as any that had gone before? Or did the people start from their beds awakened by an appalling thunderclap and the sudden terrifying downpour of rain, rain which kept on coming and coming as the rivers burst their banks and the angry tides ripped in from the sea? Or was there just a slight drizzle at first and an overcast sky? We are not told. All we know is that a mysterious hour struck in the eternal counsels of God and then all creation above and below 
arose to do the bidding of God and scour a planet rendered vile by filthy men. You and I could look at this and we could listen to words like Phillips and how he paints this picture of the flood. You and I can read Genesis 7 and 8. And here's what you and I have two options of. One, we can trust God at His Word, right? That, that should be the option. Option two, if you get in the flesh too quickly or too easily, you might go, and here's what I mean by get in the flesh, you're prideful. We're human, right? And you go, this just seems so harsh. Before my grandpa got saved, I'll never forget it, till the day I die, he, we had him to read a Bible. He had never read the Bible. He read the Bible and we said, what did you think of it? After he would read it and he said, God sure is cruel. Praise the Lord, my grandpa was saved shortly before his death and God changed his heart. I get to see him one day. Not because my grandpa was a good person. Matter of fact, my grandpa hated God till the final months of his life. We can look at this, and I can tell you this, God's not cruel whatsoever. Not harsh. As a matter of fact, all so patient, loving, and kind, and gracious. He had given them 1,500 plus years, and they continued to rebel more and more and more against Him. Then He gave them 120 years of preaching of the truth, and a call, and a beckoning of His own hand by the mouth of His servant Noah to come faith and repentance. But they would not come. God's not cruel. He's kind and gracious. As a matter of fact, what we find is this. You and I, in our human perspective, we think that sin, either one, should be winked at, two, ignored, or three, just given a good slap on the wrist. We'll, we'll, get, we'll do better, God. No, we won't. Not in our sinful flesh, we won't. God can't wink at sin, nor can He continue to ignore it. What we find is that the sins that they were committing, they weren't minor sins either. Remember back in Genesis 6, they had the sons of God, saw the daughters of men, they were fair and they took the wives of them which they chose. They were giants in the earth in those days and they were wicked rulers and cruel and violent men. God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There was none good. There was none righteous, no, not one. There was none that sought God. There was none that loved God. But there was Noah who found grace, who trusted the Lord, who trusted upon God's promise and provision. You and I must do the same. But today as we bring this section to a close tonight, what we need to do is this. We need to understand that God in this passage is doing something far greater than saving Noah and his kids. He's pointing us to Christ who is there to save us not from just a flood, not just from a tribulation, but to save us from our sin, to save us from His very wrath, to save us from hell, to save us from the curse, and to one day bring us into His presence where we shall never depart and nothing and no one shall ever, ever take us away. Yes, sir.
Amen. Yep, that's right. That's right. Amen. Well, I'll let that be the last word. That's good. Let's pray tonight. How about that? Lord, we come to you this night. We want to thank you, uh, Lord, that you are gracious. God, when we come to passages like this, Lord, they're heavy because we see the, the destruction, but we're reminded of the sin. But God, help us even more so to be reminded that Jesus came for us died for us, rose again for us, so that one day we can see You face to face. And Lord, we can't fathom that day, but help us to long to look forward to that day. Help us until that day comes, O oh Lord, to await Your promises, to, uh, to live for Your Word, to live for Your glory, to proclaim the truth of Christ and His Gospel throughout this world, and to beckon all who would hear our voices to come to Christ and to live. Lord, we love You. We thank You for this night. Thank You for Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Y'all have a blessed night. We're going to go get somebody hitched this weekend, and we'll see y'all next Wednesday, all right?